Welcome to the latest episode of our podcast mini-series on M&A for Registered Investment Advisors. The purpose of our podcast is to reveal what happens inside the deal room, give RIAs advice on how to succeed at M&A, and also provide real-life examples of situations and tactics so RIAs can be more equipped to win and close more deals. Today's episode is about execution. Joining me today for this exciting topic is one of the industry pioneers of advising RIAs on M&A, Liz Nesfold, who is a managing director and the head of asset and wealth management investment banking at Raymond James. I'm Harris Balch, head of M&A and capital strategies for Dynasty Financial Partners. And now, let's go inside the deal. This podcast is available on our website, www.dynastyfinancialpartners.com, Apple Podcast, and other major podcast platforms. If you are not already a subscriber and want to be notified of new show releases, please subscribe to Inside the Deal on your favorite podcast platform or through the episode page on our website. And if you find the content useful and feel others could benefit from it, feel free to share it widely. The second part of our podcast miniseries is focused on M&A execution. Last time, we were welcomed by Mark DeBersion and Brad Armstrong, who spoke about the importance of M&A readiness and originating a deal. But after you originate it, what do you do with it? I've been around many conversations where a client has a great opportunity in front of them, but they don't know what to do with it. Namely, how do you structure a deal in a thoughtful way so that a buyer and seller are in agreement with the valuation, transaction consideration, and deal structure? Liz, I am thrilled to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for joining us. Harris, thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. For those that are unfamiliar with you and your practice, could you kindly share a little bit about your background with our viewers? And feel free to call out our special alma mater that we both share in common. (laughs) Special alma mater. I'll start there. Binghamton University. Go Bearcats. Go Bearcats. Still trying Still trying to figure out what a bear cat is. <laughs> but, um, in terms of my background, I have been, I would say, a student of the industry now for 30 years. Um, Harris does know that I was a child prodigy and I started very, very young. <laughs> um, but uh, over the 30 years, I have been fortunate to be associated with a, a wonderful small boutique firm, uh, and then launched my own Silver Lane Advisors before my team and I came to Raymond James. Um, but I have been doing deals in uh, the space uh, commonly f- referred to as the RIA space. So for me, both asset and wealth management transactions for that duration, um, we cover private banking, trust, um, wealth tech, um, but my heart uh, is certainly on the wealth side. Thank you. Let's go straight into the questions that I'm sure that the audience really wants to hear from you on. So let's first start with uh, what's going on right now. You know, we're, we're hopefully at the tail end of the pandemic. Um, but did you ever think when you first started in the industry that M&A gone virtual would be a thing? Uh, never in my wildest dreams, um, especially dealing with intangible assets. These are businesses that are made predominantly of people. So no, if you had told me two years ago, we would have done some 20 transactions where people never met each other, never stepped on the premises of one another, I wouldn't have believed you. How have your clients felt about 
potentially monetizing their life's work to someone they've never met before. (laughs) (laughs) That's not so easy. You need to come up with a a lot of creative ways to give people an opportunity to uh, see that there is a cultural connection, a chemistry match. Um, So we've done all kinds of things from, you know, with some of our early deals, we actually, I did a, a video series with the key execs and interviewed them sort of Oprah style. And then we did outtakes and bloopers at the end uh, to give people on the other side a sense of who these folks were and their personalities. Um, And then we've hosted um, virtual cocktail hours. Um, We've broken things up into um, Zoom events for people who are um, wearing uh, similar um, uh, roles or in similar roles, I should say. Um, so it's sort of been whatever we could do creatively, um, we've done. And obviously as this crazy pandemic progressed, uh, we, um, had opportunities for in, in, uh, certain locations, um, buyer to meet seller outside, um, and with a very big table, <laughs> I'm not sure it was the easiest, but at least they could see, uh, almost see the whites of each other's eyes. Um, so we've, we've just had to be creative. So, you know, for an industry that's historically relied exclusively on multiple face-to-face interactions, have you gotten comfortable with this new environment? Do you think we'll need to go back or do you think, you know, folks have been more comfortable with, you know, adapting to this new normal? Um, That's a really good question. I think there are elements of it that um, will remain for quite some time. Um, But uh, it is, it's hard to make a chemistry match without people meeting each other. And there is no substitute for being together um, to get a sense for one another, for breaking bread, um, for, um, just having a coffee, um, or tea, uh, and trying to get a sense for, um, the other person's philosophy and, and the business dynamic, seeing somebody's, um, space, understanding how they set it up for people to interact with one another, um, getting a vibe for if it's a, an acquirer, um, what does their space look like? What's the, um, you know, you can do a lot of things virtually like tech demos, um, but it's hard to say we're going to have all these human capital resources who are going to be able to take things off your plate without giving them a chance to interact and see a space and and meet people and understand the the functional support that will be offered. So while I do think um, there will be things, aspects that will help expedite a process, there's no substitute for taking the time to get to know one another in person. Totally agree. I think it'll be a blend too. Um, folks really need to understand that uh, they're comfortable, you know, with with the culture and the people. Um, one of the recurring themes that we've been hearing, you know, is just the importance of, of culture. If the culture doesn't work, then valuation doesn't matter. But let's talk more about execution because that's really the main goal of this episode. And I think it would be really helpful to enlighten our listeners on your approach to execution, whether it's on the buy side or, or on the sell side. Can you talk a little bit about your approach? You know, when does it start? When does it end? And how does it differentiate between, you know, representing someone who's on the buy side versus someone on the sell side? 
Uh, that's a good question. And um, I, I, probably every listener will think of themselves as an acquirer, um, but <laughs> and there's little discussion about what does the, the acquisition process look like. Um, so I'll try and uh, give perspective for both hats. On the sell side, preparation is key. It's hard to just show up and start talking to people and say, hey, hey, let's get this thing together. So you need to do your homework. Um, if you're thinking about an engagement, um, it's important to uh, take stock of uh, who you are, um, what you have, what you're trying to accomplish, and are all partners, if there are more than one, you know, how are all partners really approaching it? Because um, one of the key mistakes people make um, is they just assume that all partners are in the same headspace. And often you find that out later in the deal process if you haven't done your homework up front. So uh, diligence, no matter if it's a buy-side opportunity or a sell-side opportunity that we're representing, is the number one thing that we need to do up front. Who are you? What do you look like? What do you bring to the party? Um, and how do we position that? Um, that's key. But let's really take the transaction process up to the 10,000-foot level. Um, there is a beginning there is a middle and there is an end of the process. We talked about the beginning and preparation and making sure you've done your planning work. Um, the middle is really engaging the market and making sure that you've thought about um, the partners that are out there, how you interact with them. Are you doing, back to our, our virtual world, are you spending time doing Zooms up front to getting to know some parties? And then do they bid? And then do you invite them in in person? And then uh, ultimately you have to get to the bidding phase where you really have some clarity on what would be non-binding indications of interest. And those non-binding indications of interest are really setting the business terms for a partnership. And that is really what's gauging whether or not you go forward with a singular party. Um, and so when you think about the upfront, it's probably a, a two, three month process to getting ready for the market, the engaging the market par part of the process. That's probably another uh, two to three month exercise. And then trying to document and consummate the deal, probably your last two to three months uh, in terms of the process. But each of those elements are critically important to spend the appropriate time on to make sure that you're walking through the steps carefully and that you're really thinking through the elements of transacting, again, whether buyer or seller, that are critical and requisite so that when you get to the documentation phase, it's easier for the attorneys to actually document because they know the frame of the deal. Uh, you've answered a lot of questions in the form of a term sheet or a, a letter of intent moving to a, an indication of interest. Um, but there's a framework and some meat for them to get into to really uh, document that transaction. And then ultimately, you have to get into um, various levels of diligence. There's diligence as you go through the process. Um, and then there's the what we hope is more confirmatory diligence uh, in nature as you get into that third phase of the transaction. So if you think about it as almost, um, let me make it very easy, selling a house, before you sell your house, you're thinking about what would a third party see? 
Is the faucet leaky? Uh, you know, do you need to reshingle the roof? How do you position it? What is the curb appeal? Then you engage with your broker. Um, your broker does showings. The house gets its chance to be viewed. Um, and then at the end, you get an indication of interest. And ultimately, that may lead with one of those acquirers or buyers of this house into the documentation part of the process and closing elements. So that's sort of a high-level way to think about those phases of the transaction. Um, that's key. In terms of the positioning, um, I just did yesterday on behalf of uh, an acquirer that um, they had had um, three processes where they, they got so close but ultimately weren't selected by our client. So we tried to help them do a lessons learned on what is it that's not resonating. Um, from my perspective, they did a beautiful job in terms of thinking through structure. They were on the money in terms of valuation. Um, but in terms of telling the story um, and what they bring to the equation, um, they were not as succinct as some others. And we're in this crazy dynamic, Harris, as you well know, where there are so many parties out there um, that are would-be acquirers. It's very confusing for sellers. So if you don't nail your elevator spiel, um, if you don't know what you can bring to that platform or that uh, sub-acquisition, um, and if you haven't assessed up front how they fit, um, it is not going to go well for you. That's really helpful and, and leads me to my next question, Liz. I mean, there are so many different types of buyers out there. Can you enlighten our, our viewers and, and maybe just give a, a high-level overview of what that buyer landscape looks like? Uh, it really is like a continuum of um, buyer types that are in the marketplace. And so back to our first phase of whether you're buyer or seller, what does that look like? You need to think about the landscape, meaning um, what are you trying to accomplish and um, what are the partner styles that are out there? So there's everything from dead sources. Um, there are long-life financing partners. Uh, there are family offices, pension funds uh, who will take minority stakes, majority stakes. There's uh, private equity, of course, private equity direct, private equity-backed platforms. Um, there are banks and trust companies who are in the space. Um, there is um, the great you know, strategic integrator uh, that's in the space. And then there are, are platforms that are in uh, tangential areas, whether it's accounting um, and, uh, let's say, investment banking or um, product management that are really trying to pivot or add another vertical in the space. So it's, it's quite confusing right now. There's a whole lot of everybody out there. So how do you filter it down for a client that's looking to sell their business? Uh, that's a really good question. A lot of it comes back to what is on your wish list. So if your wish list says um, we need to de-risk some because we've put our life's net worth and work into this business, but um, we're independent, we want to remain independent, um, you're not going to be talking to a strategic integrator. 
On the flip side, if you are passionate about business development and you hate running a business, you hate the compliance element and signing off on tech um, expenditures and hiring people, if that's not your thing, then you are more likely to want to partner with somebody who can let you be what you want to be and really fit you into their model. So that's probably a strategic partner. So really getting granular on the partners that are out there, how much you're willing to sell in terms of ownership from anywhere from a minority, let's say 24.9% to 100%, how much you're willing to integrate anywhere from non-integration to 100% full integration. Those are key elements to think through. And invariably, that starts to help funnel the opportunities of we take suspects and we turn them into prospects on a target list, uh, if you will. Hmm. Um, That makes it so much easier to funnel to the right opportunities. Because for those who have worked with us or know us, we don't do 100 parties on a target list. We'll throw out a bunch of teasers. Uh, That may work in tech banking, but it doesn't work in a human capital uh, setting. So it may be only 12 parties that we're reaching out to. And if we're going to reach out to them, we better have pre-screened them with our client and we better be able to come to them to say, hey, it's a unique opportunity. We've gotten to know you for a long period of time. We think this fits on the following fronts. Um, We'd love to include you. That's really interesting. And and having that kind of filtration approach to, you know, even buyer selection or buyer invitation into a process certainly helps kind of demystify all of that confusion, just given how many, how many buyers are really, really out there. And so as part of the execution process and, and really educating a, a potential seller, can you kind of elaborate a little bit for the viewers on how different buyers have different approaches to structuring a deal? Certainly. Um, And the structuring part is the challenging part for, let's say, a new acquirer, because people talk so much about valuation. Valuation is just a data point. How you get there in terms of structure is what matters the most. So when you think about, um, and and I've used this example um, before, but I had somebody um, talk to me about the deal that they did to sell their business. And they said, I got 10 times EBITDA. Um, And then as they were recounting what the the structure looked like, it was five times paid at close and one times paid over each of the next five years, subject to hitting a certain growth target. Um, And the one obvious thing, even if they were growing at, if someone said, you you grow at 2%, I'll give you all of your earnout, which is unlikely. But uh, nonetheless, even if that were the case, we're really dealing with a time value of money. Um, So on a present value basis, that structure does not lend itself to 10 times EBITDA. That might be more like, depending on hurdles, an eight times EBITDA deal. Um, So it really is about the structure. Um, On the flip side, um, it isn't always equitable to say, hey, 10 times is a good number. I'd like 100% of that paid at close. Because again, um, there should be a chance for an acquirer to risk mitigate. And what do I mean by that? Um, If you're selling 100% of your business 
and I pay you a hundred cents on the dollar and we've agreed to a 10 multiple, um, what incentive is there for you to show up the next day? Um, there is a disassociation of transaction value from employment obligations, and that is so for a reason. Um, and the reason for that is the minute you link transaction proceeds to employment elements, you change the tax um, treatment on your, your transaction proceeds. So obviously everybody's looking at least for the moment in time for long-term cap gains treatment on these transactions. So you have to do the disassociation um, between transaction proceeds and, hey, here's a five-year employment agreement. I expect that you're going to show up once the world normalizes five days a week um, to work. Um, so it, it's important for the buyer to have a chance to risk mitigate. Um, if this is an integrated deal, certainly. Um, and they want to know that you're going to show up and you're going to deliver. On the flip side, when you think about that structuring, if I am integrating with you, what happens if you don't deliver what you say you're going to deliver? What happens if you tell me you have all of these resources and we're going to take this off your plate and that off your plate and we deliver excellence and technology and you get a meh um, result there? You need to think through that structuring element and assume that the buyer, you know, delivers half of what they give you <laughs> or what they say. What does the structure really look like for the seller? And are we really looking at a structure that is a function of revenue growth, which is easier to test? Or do we have to maintain a separate P&L and we've got to argue over intercompany allocations and push down costs and, you know, who has control over vendors, et cetera. So structuring really is key. And I wish there were just a plain vanilla answer on this is how you do it, but it depends on, on the circumstance and who's at the table. Can you talk a little bit about the consideration mixes that you've seen, you know, particularly over the past, call it, you know, 12 to 18 months. I mean, cash is obviously king. But depending on how folks want to partner and align, there could always be a potential equity component. So can you give our our viewers some thoughts and insights as to kind of how you've seen that consideration mix maybe change and evolve over the past uh, 12 to 18 months? Yes. Um, cash often is king, uh, <laughs> as we say in the business. But that being said, um, often we're in situations where we have um, young founders who simply want to tap into bigger firm resources and continue to grow. If we think we're going to grow um, uh, well, but the partner with whom we're associating is growing at a much faster rate, depending on their capitalization, how they're structured, we may be better off taking some cash and some stock. But in terms of form of consideration, we've seen cash, stock, Notes, obviously, we talked a little bit about contingent earnout payments, which could be in the form of both public companies um, that are using currency again, um, where it's uh, deemed undervalued by the seller. There may be a seller election because you get the liquidity um, after maybe some restriction period, but um, you also have some upside opportunity. So it's starting to be interesting in terms of the um, the mix, which means if you are an acquirer 
and you're trying to use your equity currency, you must be prepared to disclose what your business looks like, um, what's the financial considerations that we need to be mindful of, how are you valued internally, and you know what are the key debt considerations we need to be mindful of, how levered are you. Um, so it, it sounds great if I tell you, Harris, um, I think you have a great business. I'm going to give you a premium and I'm going to acquire your business for 11 times EBITDA, half cash, half stock. But then if you don't ask the question, well, how are you valued? If I'm valued at 11 times, how are you valued? And you fail to ask that and I value my currency internally at 20 times, This is a nicely accretive deal for me. I'm picking up your EBITDA. I'm issuing security at 20 times EBITDA. I'm picking up your security, at least 50% of it at 11 times EBITDA. I might be using debt for the cash component because I can borrow at 4%. That's a a lever deal um, with an inflated currency. So it is critical that sellers do their homework. There is, is something really exciting about a fast-growing company that has a strong currency. But if you're spending your time doing your planning for clients and you do a very thorough job to understand the portfolios that they bring over when they come to you as a client, you need to do that same homework if you're going to exchange currency, um, whether it's minority or majority currency or or an in-kind exchange to make sure you understand what you're getting. That's really interesting, Liz, because it sounds like when you're going through the execution process, it's almost as important to understand the transaction on the table as it is kind of doing reverse due diligence on the buyer. So how much time are you actually spending with your clients, educating them if you're representing a seller on a, on a transaction? Uh, We spend a lot of time doing analytics um, because it is important to get granular. Um, Nobody wants to find out in the 11th hour um, what the after-tax considerations look like for them, and then it's very different from what they anticipated. So you have to make sure you do that level of um, analysis on behalf of the client to ensure they really understand the deal. I'm so excited about a number of firms that are growing at fast rates and the opportunity for clients to roll into some form of equity currency. And so relative to the statements that I made, leverage is not a bad thing. Um, So it is uh, incumbent on someone to ask the questions about it. But a little leverage is no different than using some leverage to buy a house, right? Everybody um, tends to get a mortgage. um, And that is right now um, cheap form of currency along with your equity dollars that could be very beneficial, could have some nice um, tax deductions as well. Um, So a little leverage could be attractive. But on the flip side, it's important to understand what that looks like. If you are used to getting nice uh, distributions from your partnership and you're going to roll your currency into somebody else's and they don't pay anything other than tax distributions, you might have a surprise in the 11th hour. And the goal is not to have any surprises that late because that is when deals die. Um, That's the more nerve-wracking part of the equation. So you must have clarity about what the deal looks like going into it. 
And again, if a firm is only paying um, tax distributions, that's not necessarily a bad thing either. It's sort of Warren Buffett-esque, um, which is we're here for growth of the platform, but you want to make sure you're prepared for that. You're going to get your tax distribution at some later date. You're really going to have a liquidity event with a great growth or arbitrage on the currency that you rolled into, um, but you shouldn't expect cash flow from that for a period of time because we're reinvesting back in the business, we're acquiring other firms, we're opening offices de novo, whatever you're doing there that is taking up the cash flow, it's important you do the analysis so that there are no surprises. So let's get away from things like valuation and structure for a second, because while that's obviously very, very important, let's talk a little bit more about some of the, the qualitative traits that a seller looks for in a buyer and that a buyer looks for in a seller. Is it really all about price when you're when you're working on a transaction or, you know, how much do you really factor in that qualitative component either, you know, when you're screening for your buyer list or when you're evaluating a buyer throughout a, a transaction process? Uh, it, I, I cannot stress enough how important it is to think about who's on the other side up front. Um, it is a worrisome environment for me right now because deals are happening at too fast a pace. Um, and that sounds like I am the worst marketer for my services, but you need to take the time to do your homework on who's across the table and think about that fit. Um, price is important. There's no question price is important. I am at the table to drive value. Um, but I'd much rather be at the table to find a balance between fit and value consideration, because if you don't get that uh, cultural fit right, um, it does not work out in bumpy periods. It's been easier to look at a couple of examples of fast-growing firms in, I don't know what year of a bull market we're in. I've lost track. Um, we had one minor <laughs> blowout from April, March, April of last year and rally back, but it still is a bull market environment. And it's easy with, I guess, uh, you know, rising tide lifts all boats is the expression. It's easy not to see what's underneath um, when things are going well. Um, but invariably, there will be a, a market that is less beneficial. It is inevitable. And that being said, you need to make sure you can lean on that partner in good times and bad. It doesn't matter if it is a financial investor, um, a private equity sponsor who's in the majority, um, or a strategic partner. You need to make sure you're comfortable and the document should call for things that give you some comfort. We assume everybody's going to deliver on what they say, um, but there should be some comfort that you can rely on in your deal documentation if something goes bump in the night, whether it's governance or um, freedoms or if there's a changing of the guard um, or if there are subsequent earnout payments and there's some leverage coming in that... Um, is new leverage, whatever it is, um, you know, in good markets, nobody ever pulls out their transaction documents or their governance documents to look at it. In tougher times, they do. And that's why first point of departure is to make sure you've got a sound partner on the other side of the table 
before you get to pricing. And I'm sorry, Harris, that was a long-winded way of saying that. Do you want me to rephrase that so I give you 30 seconds on that? No, that of- was that was fantastic. I mean, the, the qualitative component uh, is is something that we certainly emphasize all the time. You know, if you don't have that that cultural component in place, then like I said before, valuation and, and consideration mix just doesn't matter. And that kind of winds its way through this entire spine of the process from, from start to finish and, and really what the postmortem looks like after they're married. Um, Liz, for the benefit of our listeners, could you take us through a, a hypothetical M&A situation, maybe one that, that mirrors something that you were recently involved in? And, and, and maybe in particular, um, when you think about that situation, how was a buyer able to differentiate among the pack to ultimately win and close the deal? Oh, I'm trying to think about one hypothetical that doesn't give away the names. <laughs> um, okay, I've got one. I, I'm thinking about a past client who really wanted to free themselves from the day-to-day. There was a, a partnership um, that had a senior partner and then a number of younger partners, and the senior partner was in the the predominant ownership position. Um, and for this senior partner, he really thought he just wanted liquidity in the minority, um, and will uh, would look to his next gen to affect the buyout. Um, and in this situation, we spent a lot of time up front with financing solutions. Um, thinking about whether that was feasible. And what came out of the conversations ultimately was that people really were looking for resources. Um, The founder said, as I think about a strategic, it is most likely that I will be here for six months. um, So I'd like a really short contract. But as we got into the mix, talking to some of the strategic acquirers, um, one came to the forefront as being somebody that um, could lend the type of resources that the client was looking for. So they were looking for some uh, something that would be a little bit more digital innovation for engaging with um, smaller um, millennial opportunities. Um, it was a firm that had done a great job in that regard. Um, they were looking for stronger support on alternative capabilities. It was a firm that could articulate very succinctly what they could do in terms of um, their wherewithal on the depth of the investment platform offering. And uh, for the younger partners, they wanted to know that there was a role for them to really help build the wealth management business. Um, And so there was one buyer that came to the forefront that was so succinct on every aspect of what the client was looking for. And in particular, they saw a role for this founder who really wanted a six to 12 month engagement um, in terms of an employment agreement. Um, And they presented such an opportunity to him in particular that he actually signed up for three years and he, we just checked in with him. He thinks he's going to be there five, six years. Wow. So it's, it's one of those situations where sometimes people think they know what they want. Um, and the buyer's ability to articulate their value prop 
can reshape somebody's thinking. Hmm. So, and again, um, per my parent company, I can't name names. Um, I wish I could. But in this situation, I'm just so excited for the group. They have passed, I can't tell you which anniversary with this acquirer. Um, They did roll some equity. They're super thrilled. They're fully integrated. They're fully engaged. Um, And every question they asked, and this comes back to part of our earlier conversation about being able to differentiate, they were so succinct in their value props, the offering, where there was value um, that the seller could lend into the system, where they hadn't built out things perfectly, um, the honesty and integrity by which they, they had these conversations was just uh, blew us all away, and everybody felt like there was a unique role. So it was one of those most memorable um, transactions where you, you get goosebumps, and so the hair stands up on your arm, and you know this is the right party. Um, but they did such a beautiful job. It, it did not come down to pricing, meaning they were the second best bidder, not the first best bidder. Um, but the client went with the holistic um, partner that met them on every front um, that would make them better, but yet keep what was unique about their platform offering. That's a really cool story. And it's it's always nice to hear about a, not only a a good honeymoon, but really a happy ending, um, which will continue to, to thrive. You know, one of the things that you mentioned in that illustrative example, Liz, is, is something that uh, we have a ton of conversations about internally, which, which is really on, on serving that, that second generation advisor and succession planning. And there are a lot of different buyers out there who are trying to you know, solve for, for succession planning. There's a lot of capital out there that is trying to solve for succession planning. But in your view, that needs to come up all the time when you're having conversations with, you know, potential sellers that are, are looking to monetize, but, but they know that they're only as good as their firm. And even though their lives work is building that firm without appeasing that, that second generation, either through uh, getting a piece of, of the monetization or, or having a real path to ownership is something that comes up all the time. So I just wanted to touch on your view um, because succession is a major problem in our industry and, you know, how you try to solve for some of that through, through the transactions that you work on. That's such an important topic. Um, and succession is a hard conversation to have <laughs> with founders. Uh, and often the reason for that is it's, it's an assessment on one's own mortality um, we know um, there's a finite time frame um, for um, being on this this planet. Um, and when you get to the point where you have to start thinking about handing over the reins and what's your time horizon in the business, it can be scary for folks. Um, so it's important to engage with people. If you're on the buy side, it's important to engage with the seller early on to make sure that you can think about what they're trying to accomplish in terms of their own timeline and offering some flexibility around that. Because in that um, uh, uh, story that I, I uh, mentioned on one of my deals, you know, somebody pivoted in that with great engagement, with the ability to be fully engaged for a longer period than that particular individual ever thought he would be based on what the opportunity was. So, 
assume that there needs to be some flexibility around the edges. But on the flip side, it's important to address the control element. Um, so often people think that they can go through some succession planning exercise and still control things. And invariably, nobody wants to acquire into a currency where um, there is control by a party who might only have, you know, 12 to 24 months um, in the business. So sometimes we will engage in succession planning workshops or exercises or strategic advisory mandates with a firm before they actually decide they're going to go to market. And we think about, you know, have we equitized next gen? Um, is there incentives that we can layer on top of that if we go to the market and we do transact? Do we have a sense of how long everybody wants to stay in the business? And you have to even ask that question of partners who look like they might have a 10, 15, 20-year time horizon. Because sometimes what you find out is that um, people have different um, desires, and they may have different desires coming out of this crazy pandemic, which is you know what, I'm going to do this for the next three years, and then I'm going to go write the great American novel, um, or I'm going to go give back. I'd like to do some foundation work. Um, so you have to ask the question up and down the spectrum of partners, and you cannot make assumptions that even a younger partner might be there for the next 20 years unless you ask the question. But the planning side on succession um, events needs to happen before you go to market because invariably some third party is going to ask that question and you need to have understood what's likely to come out of your client's mouth when the question is asked and what they're really trying to accomplish. Because sometimes you're in situations where, you know, client says, Oh, I'd love a financial partner and I'd like to do a minority deal. And then the party sitting across the table said, well, great. You're the predominant um, business developer how long you want to be in the business and you say three years, well, a financial investor in the minority definitely doesn't want to sign up for that deal if that's the answer. And that means it, the burden is on us to get the client to think about something that may really work with his time horizon. And it's probably something in the majority and it may even be something that is an integrated play. Going back to succession for a second, though, I mean, valuations are going up. The value of RIAs are, are becoming you know, more and more expensive. And for a second generation advisor that's looking to kind of build their wealth, but also build their ownership in a firm that they that they want to grow with, it's just becoming a more and more expensive endeavor. So are you seeing third party financing get introduced or, or maybe a seller note or a combination, maybe a hybrid approach in order for that second generation to kind of benefit from the equity upside? that um, maybe a, a first-generation partner would, would monetize at some point in the future? Yes. Um, and they are, and again, I wish I could name names because there are a couple wonderful um, solutions in the minority or as financing solutions that exist in the marketplace. Um, again, my parent company does not let me name names. Um, but all that being said, there are wonderful ways to get people involved in the ownership. We had a deal where before we went to market, we were able to structure a slug of equity push down to next generation at a sweat equity discounted pricing um, before we went to market the next tax year. Um, in another situation, we developed a, an LTIP, a long-term incentive program, 
for incremental value above what the valuation was set at by an acquirer to work with the acquirer to make sure that um, the younger partners were equitized without writing a check. Um, we have had many situations where uh, buyers and sellers, predominant owners, have worked to reallocate value. So sometimes in the context of a deal, there may be a reallocation of value in the form of a retention pool, some that may be paid at close and some over time where people don't have to write checks again. But in terms of um, acquiring equity, it is incumbent on the partners who own the firm to think about their next generation and to think well in advance of any transaction about uh, equitizing them if the promise of being a partner had always been out there. Um, and you can bifurcate value. It's not you know, easy in the same structure, um, but there are ways to bifurcate value between what a buyer is buying in at in the minority and what a seller wishes to trade internally. Um, we have one situation that we're thinking through right now um, and uh, a client has a desire to leave a different structure internally for the um, next generation of owners and some of the, the smaller and younger partners. Um, and we may make uh, take advantage of an S-corp that we could leave in a legacy model as an old S before we do a drop down into an LLC. I know lots of technical terms, but we may leave a legacy S so that we could do something different in terms of pricing. Um, there are a lot of different ways to do it. Engage your tax counsel, um, accountants early to think that through. Um, but it's really important to make sure people that you value and that you see as the longer term successors of the business are engaged in the equity and feel like that there is a, an opportunity to create more value being an equity owner than just sitting around waiting for either retention monies or leaving and going somewhere else. So Liz, last question. If you have any advice out there for RIAs that are considering to sell their business or RIAs out there that are looking to embark on a, an acquisition strategy, what would you tell them? Oh, that's a great question to end with. On the sell side, I would say do not sacrifice pricing for culture Fit is most, most, most important. It doesn't matter if you're going to be in the business for two years or 20 years. That fit is critical. Make sure that you are transacting with somebody that you believe fits your model, fits your situation, and will work for not only the partners, but the employees, and importantly, the clients. Um, on the buy side, I would say one thing, say what you mean and mean what you say. Buyers do not have to make a lot of representations in terms of the deal documentation aspect. Um, so they are free to make all kinds of promises about how great our technology is. We're going to feed you through a fire hose with new business pro um, prospects. Um, or we're going to take these things off your shoulders. It's going to be great. It's going to be harmonious. Um, if you say those things, you must live it and breathe it. So don't tell somebody something that isn't true just to position yourself well. Make sure you're authentic because I assure you people will see through that 
if it isn't authentic. So if it's not documented, but you've said you're going to help somebody with something, deliver on what you said, because it is a very small community. And invariably, if you think you're going to be acquisitive again, the first thing my clients will ask is, let me talk to the last three deals that you've done. Um, and if there's some deal that you don't give us, um, I assure you, we'll find it. We'll talk to those parties and you want them to be able to say good things about you, even if it was a bumpy market or they didn't hit their full earnout. live it and breathe it, say what you mean and mean what you say. Liz, on behalf of myself, Dynasty Financial Partners and everyone listening, thank you for joining us on our M&A podcast miniseries. As a seasoned investment banker that is exclusively focused on helping RIAs monetize their lives' work, thank you for sharing your insights and some of the secrets to executing a successful deal. To all of our listeners, thank you for joining us. I encourage you to visit us on our website at www.dynastyfinancialpartners.com to learn more about M&A, the power of independence, as well as gain access to valuable content for RIAs. If you are not already a subscriber and want to be notified of new show releases, please subscribe to Inside the Deal on your favorite podcast platform or go on to the episode page of our website. And feel free to email or call me if you have any questions or comments. I can be reached at 516-987-9397 or by email at hbalch at dynastyfp.com. That's H-B-A-L-T-C-H at dynastyfp.com. Please note that all discussions are handled with the highest level of discretion and confidentiality. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share it with a colleague that might benefit from its content. Also, if you enjoyed listening to our show, please give it a star rating on Apple Podcast. This will help other advisors know it's a podcast worth their time listening to. I'm Harris Balch, and this is Inside the Deal. We'll see you next time. Thank you.